Welcome to the Defense Center Space Report Podcast. I'm your host, Avago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us now are Joe Cochan, the executive director of the National Spectrum Consortium, and Dr. Christine Zhang, chief research scientist at Periton Labs, a leading 5G and Next G firm. She is also the chairwoman of MILCOM, short for Military Communications, the world's leading military communications event that each year is sponsored by the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. Uh, The focus of this year's conference uh, is uh, the Pentagon's leading priority, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System uh, that can only be realized uh, through partnership, not just with military industry, but also leveraging commercial communications technologies. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. Our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsored our coverage of the recent Halifax International Security Forum. Joe, I want I want to start off with you, right? I mean, there are some folks who are not exactly familiar with what uh, the National Spectrum Consortium does, and you guys play actually a critical role in the ecosystem. Uh, and a lot of your companies are actually going to be playing and and are playing uh, key roles in sort of military uh, connectivity. Talk to us a little bit uh, about you know what you guys are are bringing to the party uh, and shaping the use of five G uh, and prepping for six G, right? I mean, even though we're just rolling out that network. Uh, we're rolling out 6G and how all of this actually plays into the broader uh, joint all domain command and control uh, narrative. The National Spectrum Consortium is a uh, 400 member uh, company and uh, academic institution consortium uh, made up of folks in the uh, communications radar sensing space, basically anybody who uses radio spectrum for wireless technology. And uh, we uh, we f- provide input and guidance and recommendations to uh, folks within DOD about ways in which new technologies in that those areas can be used to develop solutions for the federal government and DOD specifically. Um, we are the uh, holders of an OTA and uh, the transactional authority contract uh, that we use in coordination with our partners at DOD um, to fund prototyping uh, and R&D in the wireless and communication space. Um, and so I would say that in, in many ways, a lot of the building blocks of what will become a part of JADC2 and, and even beyond that, a part of the communications, you know, sensing and other networks within the Defense Department, a lot of the, the building blocks are developed uh, with the, and tested in the prototyping contracts that our members um, partner up to build and demonstrate for the DOD. And so I think that, you know, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 go on, go on. And I think that I think the best way to look at this is that, you know, 5G means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But in effect, what it what I tend to think about it is, is the first time that you are seeing, you know, cellular network technology, which was 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 
begin to converge both in terms of a, a joint international standard, one single joint international standard, no, no, not a lot of competing standards, and also converge from not just being used for literal mobile phones, but in fact also being used for IoT, for machine-to-machine -machine communication, for uh, other data networking goals. And when you see that convergence happening in the industry, broadly, um, you begin to understand that, you know, DOD also began to understand that they needed to understand that convergence and uh, map that convergence onto DOD needs as well and make sure that the networks that are being developed, 5G, and then as you mentioned, 6G and beyond, next G, they call it, um, if that is to be the major mobile wireless networking standard for the world, it also has to be something that can be uh, included in and built for DOD purposes, right. even if it requires, you know, different security or configurations, et cetera, uh, that DOD needs to align itself in, in some ways with that technology development pathway. Um, and I believe that, you know, JETC2 is a good example of uh, a big project right. headed exactly in that direction. Um, and I'm, I'm going to uh, come back to you uh, in a moment uh, because the key role that you guys play as as any major uh, trade organization is is sort of um, you know advisor uh, to the government you know in terms of how we go about uh, you know doing this uh, you know the interface between industry for example and 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 the government and indeed uh, other uh, agencies and I should point out uh, Christine that you're also uh, a national spectrum consortium board member. Uh, and, and so, you know, straddle your organization uh, as, as well as uh, your IEEE uh, role. You know, you've been working in this space for a long time. What is it that folks in the Pentagon and the military ecosystem have to understand about the role of this technology and where it's going, given that you've sort of been at the forefront of this and are, are leading, you know, Periton's efforts on next G, right? Because, you know, as we've had one through five, we're going to have six and beyond. And as Joe said, right, the important part of this is getting sort of the mechanics of it right. Right. Yeah. Again, happy to to be here today. Uh, first, let me comment a little bit more about the IEEE Mailcom conference, and then I will come back to NSC's uh, role and, and in this bring together the industry community to participate, contribute to the Jazzy 2 theme. So I will say uh, the military communication conference uh, it's a premier international conference bringing together four leaders and professionals from academia, industry, and the government uh, to address unique challenges in military communications. So this year is actually we are celebrating 40th uh, years anniversary of MELCOM. Uh, so, and it's a theme around transform uh, trans transforming decision-making through joint or domain com command and control, Jazzy 2. So this is a very broad theme. Uh, echo, you know, our current nation, nation interest and the DOD's uh, investment priority among all the services. So we're building technology pillars in secure communications, resilient networks, multi-domain operations, cybersecurity, and machine learning. So the MILCOM uh, general forum is actually open to all participants, uh, unclassified fashion, but we do have a restricted access program. This includes both controlled and classified information, CUI materials, 
that will be the held in the same forum as open public domain. Uh, in addition to a classified program for content up to top secret and sensitive comp uh, compartment information, TSSCI level. So this year, um, the Milcom conference has a very comprehensive program, not just paper reviewed, uh, peer reviewed papers presentation. We also have VIP panels, keynote speakers, uh, tutorials and the panels just bring together more than 500 professionals in the community to, to discuss this jazzy tooth theme. I, I'm gonna uh, come back to you in a moment, uh, Christine, but I just wanted to uh, quickly ask uh, Joe, talk to us a little bit about, you know, and I mentioned that, you know, you guys play a key interface role. Talk to us all about the interface role, but also, you know, you also mentioned OTAs, other transaction authorities that the department has increasingly been reaching out to uh, in, in order to sort of leverage, uh, you know, and bring innovation into the department at a faster rate, right? I mean, the regular acquisition system not see, seen as being uh, responsive enough. Talk to us about those two themes. One of the most valuable things about the National Spectrum Consortium, in my mind, is that you've got a, a, a gathering of uh, over 400 of the most um, relevant and active companies and academic research groups in the wireless and communication space, all as members of the organization. And because of that, and because of the unique structure, as you mentioned, of the of the OTA, um, we are able to have you know, direct give and take and, and dialogue with the federal government uh, on these issues. And so, you know, for instance, um, that effort ranges from uh, earlier this summer us hosting an uh, event on Open RAN, which is something that you know folks in the communication space are, are probably um, very familiar with but essentially is a discussion of ways in which you can have a more flexible uh, and interoperable radio network system that uses components from multiple different companies to uh, stitch together network connectivity. Well, that is a major focus of the federal government and the DOD, and we were able with DOD to uh, host an event earlier this summer where we uh, did some brainstorming on ways in which DOD can uh, uh, push forward the development of such an ecosystem in the United States and you know we had hundreds of members attend. We've now kicked off a, um, a recommendation writing session where at the end of it, we hope before the end of this year, be able to present DOD with some concrete ways in which they could you know, achieve that vision and they can take that advice or not as they please. But it, th that advice will come from you know, the most active and relevant companies and academic groups in the space. And so it's a, it's a unique convening uh, and then those recommendations, if the OD so chooses, could turn into R&D demonstration and prototyping contracts that they could then turn around and run through the OTA that the NSC holds. And so we can you know, both receive input from the DOD in terms of them making presentations about what their interest is in a particular technology area or space. We can then you know, process that input and provide thoughts and suggestions. And then you can move directly to you know, an execution phase where DOD could say, oh, this is interesting. You've identified X, Y, and Z areas of particular interest. We'd like to see who wants to compete within the consortium to show us, to do a demonstration, do a pilot, do a prototype. Um, one of the, aside from that uh, unique give and take and that sort of chain of feedback that I just described, uh, the other thing is that the OTA allows for uh, non-traditional, smaller and non-traditional companies and research groups to participate in a way that 
they might not be able to uh, in other DOD contracting um, uh, venues. Um, over half, in fact, uh, going up to almost two thirds of our members are small and or non-traditional DOD contractors, uh, which is unique and offers a, a unique opportunity uh, for uh, DOD to hear from and for smaller companies to get feedback directly from DOD on new technology. So they get direct exposure to ideas and new technology. And, and to me, that uh, is a very valuable uh, chain of events uh, that will help push forward big, complex efforts like JNC2, for instance. Um, Christine, uh, uh, just to uh, wrap this up, uh, even though I think we could do a broader program uh, and would like to look forward to being able to have uh, a deeper conversation uh, with both of you or either of you uh, on the technology and how to think about it. I just wanted to uh, ask you, you know, from, uh, you know, since you are the interface uh, between uh, NSC as well as, as, as MILCOM, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what NSC is doing to support MILCOM this year. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, it actually is my pleasure to to be to sit on the NSC XCOM board and also uh, serving as a chairwoman for the general conference for Mailcom. So I would say, in the NSC perspective, I'm representing more like traditional defense company. Um, but NSC has a broad membership of more than four hundred members. Uh, especially from non-traditional companies and also small business. So I would say the current focus by the nation uh, in terms of investigating in the JZ2 or in the broadest uh, war specifically on, I would say, futurity, right? We, uh, three years ago, uh, Defense Science Board made the recommendation to do investment on 5G technology, uh, leveraging commercial investment to to make dual use of commercial use and uh, DOD use. Now we're really moving toward future G. You know, what additional technology development needs to be done by the US company and also leverage the international company's investment in this uh, future technology domain. Guys, uh, thanks so very much. Uh, and I hope folks uh, check out the show. Thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Great, thanks, Vago. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. And I hope you guys had a very happy Thanksgiving. Very, very good one, Bago. Thank you. Uh, in, indeed. Uh, good good to recharge the batteries before the year of the end, uh, end of the year push uh, and uh, and then get, to, get a nice start to 2023. Um I want to talk about a couple of your notes over the course uh, of uh, the last week, and I want to start off uh, with uh, China. Uh, we talked about it on yesterday's program a little bit about, you know, chi China coughs, the world catches a cold, uh, or China catches a cold and the world gets sick, right? You know, the analogy, uh, whether or not it's domestic uh, disturbance, COVID lockdowns and the like has impacts on the entire global ecosystem. There's been a lot of concern about strategists uh, that if uh, China does uh, happen uh, to fracture internally, it's going to be very problematic and perhaps uh, authoritarian regimes miscalculate. Uh, and indeed, uh, Hal Brands uh, in his book, 
uh, with uh, Michael Beckley have been talking about that very point, that China actually becomes more dangerous when it becomes more unstable. What do you draw from some of the protests we've seen, whether at the Foxconn uh, facility uh, in Zhengzhou or anywhere else in the country where protests are spreading over COVID lockdowns? Well, I think the first observation is these are really unprecedented in their scale and scope. And frankly, what people are doing on the street, you know, they are calling for um, Xi to step down. You know, they're, they're making some very foundational demands <clears throat> for change in the way China is governed. So I don't think you can dismiss this as just another minor event. Now, there's already news today, you know, about fairly brutal uh clampdowns on, on the demonstrations that have been going on. And I suppose the base case is, you know, the Chinese government will <clears throat> ride this one out too, as they've ridden uh, past um, bouts of, of protests and spasms of discontent. But <clears throat> to the point, you know, I got a note out this morning and I think I'm not ready to move from a base case, which is, you know, China's still going to be the pacing threat. They're still going to be able to um, modernize their military and, uh, and, you know, they're going to remain the primary focus of Asian and U.S. defense spending uh, in the 2020s. But you have to ask yourself, you know, how does this thing evolve or change? And change can happen very quickly. Um, there are scenarios, you're right, where China faces all sorts of internal problems. Um, they're they're going to spend more money on <clears throat> internal security as opposed to modernizing their military. Uh, you know, if you start using your military for internal um, security, you know, that's that's less time to go train and prepare for a conventional conflict. Uh, I suppose there there are scenarios where, you know, you think about prior periods in Chinese history where, um, you know, it's devolved into a, a pretty chaotic state. We're not there yet. Um, you know, it's, it's just time to think about some of these things and, and monitor how this is going to potentially evolve. But um, but I would agree, you know, to the point you're, you're seeing the markets react to this today. You know, oil is off, some of the commercial aerospace stocks are off, defense is holding up okay. Um, you know, but it's a change. And I, I don't think that this is just the, the blip in the pan. You know, it's kind of like what's going on in Iran, where um, the protests that started in September have been ongoing. And they're they're not just simple calls for change uh, in, in the Iranian regime. They're, they're really foundational changes that, that people want. And it's still getting out in the street. And it's, it's causing Iran to uh, maybe potentially act differently. Uh, and that's a risk in and of itself. Uh, what we're seeing in China uh, is not exclusively about COVID lockdowns, right? I mean, it is because of the increasing authoritarian nature of the regime uh, that people are pushing uh, back uh, against. And and there will be some uh, who will take this and say, ah, you know, well, that, that threat kind of falls off the plate, although I don't think anybody responsible is looking at it uh, that way no. uh, at all. Uh, yeah. And I, I like I said, I think you see some of the protesters, you know, they, they want an end to some of the censorship that's been going on. You know, this is a government that uh, that has not been, you know, it, it's more than just COVID-19. It's it's kind of a whole broader set of governance, legitimacy. You know, uh, I've seen protest signs. People don't want uh, Xi as an emperor. They they want, you know, someone else to, to step in and, you know, kind of revert to a more normal um, uh set of changes in, in leadership. So it's it's interesting. Um, 
you know, I read one thing today about uh, unemployment rates among kind of 20 year olds in uh, in China, which was kind of startling as well, too. Um, their economy has not been doing that well. Um, so it, it's just unclear how this regime is going to respond to all this other than, you know, cracking heads. And that's not going to resolve any of the underlying grievances that their population has. So where this goes um, and what it means for defense, you know, I would agree. I'd kind of err on the, the side of caution here. But there are scenarios where it, it could play out in really rather dramatically different ways than than people now assess what China is and, and the threat that it poses or the type um, of it poses. But but uh, you know you're you're you know, what's very interesting about this is uh, that three of the four uh, countries that the United States looks at in terms of authoritarian regimes that are dangerous troublemakers. It's interesting that China has its hands increasingly full. Iranian uh, leadership has its hands full uh, with uh, protests now, and and Russia indeed right where increasing Vladimir Putin is coming under uh, increasing pressure, and uh, Sam Bendet's going to join us tomorrow uh, on the program uh, to talk to us a little. Little bit about the latest that we have on, uh, out of Russia and how it's prosecuting uh, the war again, hoping that it can break uh, the Western alliance, uh, that the Western alliance will fracture uh, uh, before uh, it will collapse, which I think is an interesting calculation. Um, let's let's go to defense budget and your base case. I mean, we are going into the lame duck uh, period. The Reagan Defense Forum uh, will be uh, Friday evening is the cocktail reception. Next Saturday uh, is is the big event. Uh, where we're going to hear from uh, leadership, including Secretary Austin and almost, uh, you know, many other uh, luminaries across the department, uh, whether uh, the service secretary is Frank Kendall, and we're going to talk to Secretary Kendall while we're out there. Uh, and we're going to talk to Comptroller uh, Mike McCord um, about some of the challenges uh, facing the, de the department. Talk to us a little bit about your base case budget uh, scenario and where it goes and whether there's any change to it. Look, for now, you know, my base case is this is all going to get done. Uh, it's certainly not going to get done by December 16th, which is when the current CR ends. Um, I fully expect we'll get another CR. You know, we could go right to January 2nd, which would be the last day of the 117th Congress. Um, but I, I'm still of the mind that, you know, we're just at that stage. They're always uh, the proverbial wall of worry that both the appropriations bill and the NDA seems to climb um, at this time of year when, you know, they're not agreements yet on defense and non-defense discretionary spending. Um, you don't really have a, a, you know, consensus yet on what should or should not be in the National Defense Authorization Act. And yet somehow we get it done. So, or Congress gets it done. So I'm, I'm still in the mind that, uh, you know, the posture coming out of Reagan will be, <clears throat> you've seen some of this today, there are going to be warnings about the damage that a, a lengthy continuing resolution could do to national defense. Um, Ukraine military aid is going to get caught up in this, although there were statements, I think, today that some of the Republican leadership were actually walking back what seemed to be uh, less support for, for Russian, uh, for Ukrainian military aid. So, I'm hopeful, uh, you know, despite the warnings that, that we do get it done, but we're, we're probably really going to have a better beat on this until week after next um, and see how much progress Congress has made in, in getting this done. But as things stand today, <clears throat> you know, there's not a lot of progress to report on uh, certainly on the appropriations bills, but I think it'll I think it'll get done. 
Um, what was uh, interesting is that on the one hand, as we heard uh, in Halifax uh, from the bipartisan delegation that was there, and it was nine members, it was the largest uh, CODEL, uh, three uh, members of the House uh, and uh, the rest uh, members of the Senate talking about how strong bipartisan support for Ukraine uh, is, but you can't help but ask questions when this keeps coming up, uh, you know, certainly from the most liberal wing of the Democratic Party, which I think Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership sort of beat down. Uh, but you hear it coming up from the Republican side about, well, do we, you know, we need to have audits in terms of the aid that's being given and how it's being spent and, 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 the, and the like. Are you convinced that support will remain as strong as members who support that aid maintain it is? I think there's going to be a vocal minority, both, you know, on the far liberal leftist side and on the far, uh, probably more, frankly, on the right side, just because public opinion polls, there's a Pew Research poll, it's probably a month or two old now, but there are more GOP, uh, there were more respondents who identified themselves as, as Republican voters who did not want to see um, kind of open-ended Ukraine aid and who were not willing to make uh, sacrifices to aid Ukraine. So I think that does get, you know, broadcast back through some of the Republican members of Congress. But, you know, <clears throat> you still have to look at this as how votes would actually play out, not what individual members would say. And yeah, I I, I think, it, I, I think though, Vago, you know, when you really look at the nature of this war, what Russia represents, <clears throat> what Russia has been doing to Ukraine, um, I, I don't think the Republican Party can take a stance <clears throat> that they're strongly opposed to China and, um, and trying to deter China from doing anything with Taiwan. If they if they cut the legs off of uh, of military aid to Ukraine, I mean that's going to send absolutely the wrong message um, to to China about about the willingness and the steadfastness of the U.S. to support an ally um, or or a similarly minded country in need and one that's uh, facing the horrors of uh, some pretty pretty brutal um, attacks on their civil infrastructure on their population. I mean I, I just don't think. I, I am confident that uh, <clears throat> that the re, that the support will be sustained in 2023. Uh, I, I thought it was uh, interesting that if um, you know, as we've discussed on the program, uh, there are many people in the department, including at the very senior, most military ranks, who did not want to be supporting, did not want to be spending this kind of money supporting uh, Ukraine against Russia under the guise that this money is critically needed in order to prepare the United States uh, for China. And that's where the, the focus should be. But what I find is interesting is that over time, even those folks who believed uh, steadfastly that we should stop helping Ukraine believe now that it is integral and sends exactly the kind of message we need to be sending to China, that we're willing to stick this out and that we would stand by Taiwan and that this isn't going to be a quick and easy thing uh, for you to do and inject some doubt into the mind uh, of uh, an adversary who might miscalculate again another authoritarian regime, especially the, the more unstable they get at home, the more they might want to lash out externally as a way to bring the country together to distract attention, uh, what 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 have you. Well, um, I think the, the other part about it, Vago, it, it does potentially impose a cost on China if China has to worry more about <clears throat> whether Russia can actually provide security in Central Asia. 
Um, that's going to take maybe their eye off the Taiwan ball a little bit. Um, and, you know, I still think at some point um, they, they do not want to see Putin fall and be replaced by a, a regime or a government uh, that would be more Western leading. So I, I just think, you know, it's kind of the knee bone is connected to the hip bone when it comes to China, Ukraine, Russia, and Taiwan. And I, I, I think, you know, when people really think through what all this aid is doing, and, and frankly, you know, for a cost, it's really the fraction of the annual U.S. defense budget. It's pretty amazing what Ukraine has been able to do to the third largest military in the world, the third, third most powerful military in the world. Right. Indeed. Um, there's always more uh, stuff to talk about than uh, we have time. We've got about a minute and a half. Talk to us about the key uh, stuff the audience should be tuning into uh, in the week ahead and what to look forward to. Well, besides the um, the Reagan event, which you mentioned on December 2nd and 3rd, there's a Rand Mitchell Institute uh, West Coast Aerospace Forum that day on December 2nd. Uh, that's the lessons learned from the Russo-Ukraine conflict for the Pacific Theater that looks pretty interesting. Uh, Chatham House is having a one-day conference December 1st in London on how Russia's war in Ukraine is going to shape the region's future. Um, I am very much looking forward to a paper that the Royal United Services Institute will be releasing on uh, November 30th. It's talking about the lessons in conventional warfare fighting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Lidos is doing an investor meeting in Huntsville, Alabama, November 30th to December 1st. Um, Atlanta Council has a couple of events going on. There's a CSIS event on Japan's national security and economic security. So a lot going on this week, I think, as, as you said, you know, people kind of prepare for the uh, the sprint into the, the end of the year holiday season. Uh, in uh, Indeed. And we should point out that uh, we're going to be uh, covering the West Coast Aerospace Forum uh, as well. And uh, the B-21 is going to get rolled out. Uh, on uh, Friday uh, as well for what will be a major dog and pony show, although I'm not sure that we will know anything more about the airplane than we do now. But hope springs eternal. <laughs> it always does. Indeed. Uh, Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it uh, and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago.